Welcome back, friends, for part two in the Leadbelly series, where we are exploring the legendary life of Huddy Leadbetter, one of the most influential yet often overlooked figures in music history. If you haven't heard part one yet, I suggest you go give that a listen first, since it will tie in everything else that we'll be discussing in this episode, and his life only gets more intense from here. To recap, since it's been a couple weeks, last time we went over Leadbelly's tumultuous childhood and early adulthood, he started life the doted-upon only son of two farmers in Mooringsport, Louisiana. He started playing music at age two, and by early adulthood could play six instruments that we know of. But he was witness to a lot of violence at home, something that would no doubt have a huge impact on him. He was living in a hard world, and that world molded a hard man. He was the grandson of slaves and was born into a segregated world regulated by Jim Crow laws. By 14, he was regularly coming home with torn clothes and bloody wounds, and he started reacting more and more violently to a violent world. By 16, he had committed his first attempted murder, and had already fathered two children, one of which died in infancy, and the other he denied as his own. After leaving home in his late teens, he spent two years in Shreveport, playing music on Fannin Street, and making money where he could. After that, he returned home, but found his reputation had not improved in the rural farming community. He was then, by his own account, run out of town. He spent the next couple of years traveling from New Orleans to Dallas and soaking up the diverse sounds that would help shape his own music, sound that was catching fire and sending out new explosive pulses of music, each a piece of the living heart that was jazz, blues, creole, folk, and all of it was helping to create one of the most influential musicians of all time. The list of artists we know who have made money off of Leadbelly's songs is extensive. Leadbelly was leading a life full of violence, alcohol, and womanizing. This would catch up to him in his 20s, causing him to catch a serious STD, which was probably gonorrhea, and it very nearly killed him. This near-death experience gave him a new perspective, and for a time he changed his behavior. He even attended college for a time. He even married. A woman named Lethe had stolen his heart, and she gave him a sense of stability he hadn't experienced as a grown man before. They worked the land together, finding employment on farms in the planting and harvest seasons, and moved to Dallas on the off-seasons, where Lethe would work odd jobs, and Huddy would bring in what money he could by playing his music. But his reformed behavior would not last long, and soon Leadbelly was back to womanizing, fighting, and playing his music wherever he could. And what comes next is history. Join me as we continue to explore the life and the legend of Leadbelly. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. <music> 
You're going to hear some incredible music in this episode. Everything you'll hear will be almost a century old, just like in the last episode, so the sound quality may not be great, but that's because these songs were recorded on sound equipment that was far more primitive than anything you'd find even on your cell phone today. Personally, I like the popping, crackling sound that brought us the songs of Lead Belly and so many others whose voices would have otherwise been lost somewhere in time. Like last time, the primary source I used for this episode came from the book The Life and Legend of Lead Belly, a work that took its authors Charles Wolfe and Kip Lornell over three years to gather and write, and it's the best source of information I found about Lead Belly's life and I'll be sure to cite that as well in the show notes with the other sources I've used, as always. This episode is going to be more violent than the last one. Some of the things that Leadbelly did will be hard to hear, especially if you're a fan of his, like I have been for years. One of the hardest parts of researching someone in history that you have admired, and this happens so often, is finding out that they were a flawed human being who did things you didn't associate with the kind of person you thought they were. Leadbelly was a musical genius, and he was incalculably influential. But he was also a very violent person who did things that are hard to talk about. But I can't leave something out of a story just because I don't like it. When we slice and dice history to make it fit our own idea of who we wish someone would have been, we do a disservice to them, to their story, their struggle, and to history in general. I can't give you the whole story without telling you the whole story. So you're getting everything. Just know sometimes in this episode and the next, there will be times when things get violent, and I'll give you a trigger warning before the really bad stuff. It's important to remember that Leadbelly in large part was a product of his world. He lived in a time so different from the one we know now. He grew up in a place where violence was not uncommon, a household where he was witness to domestic abuse. He was constantly being told that he was less than by the Jim Crow laws that managed his everyday life, and he himself had been a victim of abuse. He told a story much later in his life to a friend a story he had kept to himself for years. He said that when he was a child, and he was really beginning to learn guitar, there was a white man, a boss of his, that liked hearing him play. The man played the guitar too, but he wasn't any good at it. Even as a child, Huddy was far better. Some nights the man would get drunk, and he would force Huddy to play for him for hours and hours while he drank. Every once in a while, this white man would stare at Huddy, and then he would call him a racial slur that I will not say, but you can probably guess what it is. Then he would tell this child he had been forcing to entertain him for hours while he got drunk, Someday, I'm gonna kill you. Huddy kept this story to himself until he was an old man, and his life was full of moments like this, Moments we don't know about. Moments where he was made to feel powerless so someone else could feel powerful. As he grew, Leadbelly would cope with these moments through violence, drink, and womanizing. Forensic psychologist Dr. Catherine Seifert, one of the leading experts in the fields of multi-victim violence, bullying, trauma, and mental health-related violence in the U.S., with over 30 years of research and experience, 
identifies numerous factors that determine human behavior and whether a person is at risk for developing violent tendencies. These include biological traits, family bonding, individual characteristics, intelligence and education, child development, peer relationships, cultural shaping, and resiliency. She says, quote, One factor can affect and be affected by another. When the accumulation of negative factors, such as maltreatment, chaotic neighborhoods, or psychological problems, and the absence of positive factors, such as opportunities to be successful, adults who provide encouragement, or a resilient temperament, reach a threshold, that's when violence is more likely to erupt as a means of coping with life's problems." Unquote. From the beginning, Leadbelly's life had been a melting pot of more than one of these factors, and they eventually erupted into repeated acts of violence and infidelity. Now, I'm not trying to excuse the acts of violence I'll be discussing. I guess I'm just trying to give some perspective on why he might have done them. And I'm saying that it isn't for me to judge him, because I wasn't him. And with that, let's get to his story. When we last left Huddy, he was living in Dallas with his wife, Lethe. She was busy working whatever job she could, and he was down in an area called Deep Ellum playing music. Deep Ellum was not officially a red light district, but it was considered to be one by many. In their book, Wolf and Lornell found an article from the 1930s describing Deep Ellum. It said it was, quote, The one spot in the city that needs no daylight savings time because there is no bedtime and working hours have no limits. The only place recorded on earth where business, religion, hoodooism, and gambling and stealing go on without friction, unquote. Deep Ellum also had exactly what Huddy was looking for, an explosive and extraordinary music scene. Here, Leadbelly met a young man in his teens. He was about 5 feet 8 inches tall and 180 pounds, roughly 82 kilos. He played on street corners, a tin can hanging from his guitar by a piece of wire, so passerby could offer him spare change for his songs. He was young, he was blind, and he was going to be a star. This was Blind Lemon Jefferson, one of the first real legends of the blues. He led a mysterious life that ended in a mysterious death, and he and Leadbelly were about to make music history together. Blind Lemon Jefferson was one of the first solo blues artists to achieve wide popularity, and one of the most influential blues artists from the 1920s, and he's remembered today as the father of the Texas blues. He could play more than blues, including old ballads and gospel songs, folk and ragtime, but the blues was his focus before anything else. This man lived and breathed the blues, and even today, his fingerprints are all over it. Listening now to the songs he recorded in the 1920s, you'd hear what sounds to us like familiar blues melodies, with an impromptu-sounding disregard for bar and time structure, guitar licks with bent notes and melodic lead lines, and improvisational vocal patterns. But at the time, the characteristics that made his songs so original were new, and artists like B.B. King, Robert Johnson, Canned Heat, Lightning Hopkins, the list goes on and on, would replicate those sounds, and they are the staples of the blues as we know it today. And it sounded like this. <laughs> ¶¶ 
gotta die. I'm broke, hey, gotta die. Everybody gets it hard sometimes. I was standing on these Kero's feet one day. I was standing on these Kero's feet one day. Standing on East Kero Street one day One dime was all I had Mama, don't treat your daughter me Blues, recorded by Blind Lemon Jefferson in 1927. At the end of this episode, I'm going to let Blind Lemon end the show by playing another song of his called Rabbit Foot Blues he recorded in 1926. Thank goodness for public domain. By the way, I still don't know how many episodes this series is going to take me, but I'll play something from the public domain like I did with Mammy Smith's Crazy Blues last time and Blind Lemon this time. Their music is just too beautiful and too important not to share. Now, getting back to Blind Lemon. He was younger than Leadbelly by about five years, probably around 19 years old when they met. And Blind Lemon was doing what Leadbelly did, playing street corners, saloons, house parties, and scraping out a living with his music as best he could. Sometimes he would bring in extra cash by working as a bootlegger. He was born most likely in Couchman, Texas in 1892, or more likely 1893, the youngest of seven children. Like Leadbelly, records of his birth are contradictory by a year and are hard to verify. He was blind from birth, though some of the musicians he would play with later said he had some slight vision, although it was extremely poor. He would wear wire glasses at times in his life, but even if he did have some slight ability to see, it was poor enough that he usually had to have some help in getting around. 
Like Huddy, he had started playing music in childhood, and by the time he was a teenager, he was already a master of the guitar. He traveled through Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Virginia, something that was not easy for a blind black teenager over a hundred years ago. According to Josh White, a friend of Huddy's and a man that helped lead Blind Lemon around, the young musician would come home, lay in bed next to his guitar, and, quote, shout his blues into the night air. I freaking love that. Even though Lemon was younger, Leadbelly credited Blind Lemon Jefferson for the rest of his life as being his one great teacher, and Leadbelly's music would reflect the time he spent with Lemon to a significant degree. It was Lemon who taught Leadbelly how to play the slide guitar, and Huddy would write and record five different songs later in tribute to Blind Lemon. No one knows for sure how long the two played together, Leadbelly would often change the year he said they had met, sometimes saying it was as early as 1904 and that they played together for as long as 18 years. But Blind Lemon was only 11 years old in 1904, and Huddy was only 16, still living at home and getting ready to head to Shreveport for two years after that. Leadbelly often exaggerated his stories, gave wildly different dates and times, and even changed the details. The 1904 date appears to be one of those exaggerations. He also gave 1912 as the year they met, and this is actually likely, as the two performed a song about the sinking of the Titanic together called Fare Thee Well Titanic, and that did happen in 1912. The two most likely played together for what was probably a period of no more than five years off and on, from about 1912 to 1917 and they traveled out and around the Dallas area wherever and whenever they could, usually by train. They'd play for the conductor and collect money on their way to wherever it was they were going. The lucky crowd on the train didn't know it, but they were watching two of America's greatest music legends play together. Lucky bastards. About a decade after the two went their separate ways, Blind Lemon was picked up by Paramount Records in 1925 and sent to Chicago to record. In 1926, he received nationwide fame for his single, which had two songs, Got the Blues and Long Lonesome Blues. These reportedly sold over 100,000 copies. He would record over 100 songs, some of which are still covered by artists today. Songs like Matchbox Blues and Easy Rider Blues and See That My Grave is Kept Clean. While his birth year is uncertain, the year of his death is not. He died in December of 1929 at the age of 36. His death certificate says he died of chronic myocarditis, which according to the Mayo Clinic is an inflammation of the heart muscle, which reduces your heart's ability to pump, which causes arrhythmias or rapid or abnormal heart rhythms. Basically, it weakens your heart so the rest of your body doesn't get enough blood. Clots can form in the heart, which can lead to a stroke or a heart attack. He died alone, outside on a street in Chicago, possibly after becoming disoriented in a snowstorm. It's likely he had a heart attack and then died of exposure. Rumors about his death grew rapidly and spread for years, as seems to happen with any music legend that dies young. Some said a jealous lover poisoned his coffee. Some said he was robbed and murdered. Some said it was a car accident or even a dog attack. 
but it was most likely heart failure. His body was put on a train and sent home to Texas. Graveyards were segregated, another heartless mandate by Jim Crow, so he was buried in what was then called the Wortham County Negro Cemetery, in an unmarked grave. The first real blue star was laid to rest without even a stone to mark his place. In 1967, his grave was designated a Texas Historical Grave by the Texas Historical Survey Committee, and a plaque was placed where it is believed he was buried. In 1997, that was replaced with a granite headstone, which you can still visit today if you find yourself near Wortham, Texas. Inscribed on his tombstone is a line from one of his most famous songs he recorded in 1928, a year before his death. The gravestone reads simply, Lemon Jefferson, September 1893 to December 1929. Lord, it's one kind favor I'll ask of you. See that my grave is kept clean. Only one kind favor I ask of you. Only one kind favor I ask of you. Lord, it's one kind favor I'll ask of you. See that my grave. It's a long lane, got no end. It's a long lane and got no end. It's a long lane, ain't got no end. Then it's a bad wind that never changes. Lord, it's too. Well, it's two white horses in a line. Well, it's two white horses in a line. Well, take me to my very ground. My heart's a beat in my hand, I told. My heart's a beat in my hand, I told. Well, my heart's a beat, Lord, my hands are true. It wasn't no more girl, but I've approved. Have you ever heard a coffin sound? Have you ever heard a coffin sound? Have you ever heard a coffin sound? Then you know what the poor boy is in this room.
haunting, isn't it? The time he spent in Dallas was paramount for Huddy, and not just because he met Blind Lemon. Dallas is where he found and fell in love with the 12-string guitar. Like so many aspects of Leadbelly's life, how this went down is not certain, mostly because Leadbelly told several different versions of how it happened. In one, a pretty girl was distracting him while he played, and he strummed so hard, all but one of the six strings on his guitar broke one by one as she inched closer to him. He said he was still able to perform with just one string, but that's when he made up his mind that he would need 12 from there on out. This one probably didn't happen. The more likely story is when he told of coming upon a medicine show where he heard a man playing a 12 string and couldn't take his eyes off of it. He said it was a traveling medicine show where they sold cure-alls for 50 cents a bottle the kind of snake oil that promises to cure everything, but actually does nothing. He loved how loud the instrument was and how it resonated and rang out through the crowd. He spent the rest of the night in the medicine tent, listening to the man play. Not long after that, he saw one for sale in the window of a music store in Dallas. It was $12, much more than Leadbelly had, so he found a cotton farmer who agreed to pay him $5 for every thousand pounds of cotton picked. Within the week, he had enough money to buy the 12-string Stella that would become his trademark. Picking that much cotton in a week would have been monstrously difficult, but not totally impossible, at least not for Leadbelly. His entire life, Huddy had been astonishing others with how much he could pick in a day. And it is how he made money during the planting and harvest seasons, so this might actually be true. However he got his hands on that Stella, one thing is certain, he never let go of it again. Twelve strings were fairly new to the music scene in the US when Leadbelly bought his Stella. Street performers liked them because you could find them for relatively cheap prices and they were much louder than a normal six string, which helped players cut through the noise of busy streets and thick crowds. They tended to fall apart quickly though, especially the more cheaply made versions. Larger gauge strings were often used, and the extra tension on the neck and body because of the extra strings caused them to warp relatively quickly. They were harder to play, too, especially if a player wanted to bend notes and required more finger and hand strength than an average six string. After years of hard manual labor, this was not a problem for Huddy. The 12 string probably came to the US from Mexico as immigrants brought the instrument with them into the US. Mexico already had a long history of adding an extra six strings to the guitar by Leadbelly's time. Another theory is that Italian immigrants working in American guitar factories experimented with adding strings, since Italy also has a long history of using double strings on instruments, like the mandolin. The Stella Company was based in New Jersey and was a trade name of the Oscar Schmidt Company that incorporated in New Jersey in 1911. The one Leadbelly bought in Dallas was probably one of the earliest models the company made. Stellas were not known for their durability, and Leadbelly would go through several in his lifetime. Other companies made better quality 12 strings, but Leadbelly continued to favor Stellas for the rest of his life. Stellas from Leadbelly's day are hard to find now, because most of them just haven't survived, and you'd be paying a whole lot more than $12 for one today. So check your grandma's basement. 
His preference for large gauge strings added tension to the guitars he played, but he liked the sound. He found the sound he wanted when he used a pick made of bone for his thumb and one made of steel for his index finger. The first night after he bought his Stella, he took it to a dance where he loved how the thundering resonance complemented the booming sound of his own voice. A few years after this, Leadbelly was referring to himself as king of the 12-string guitar. And whether or not he gave himself that moniker or someone else did, he definitely deserved it. Here is a sample of what that Stella sounded like. You'll hear in this song that Leadbelly had no trouble picking individual notes on those thick gauge strings between strums. This song, usually called In the Pines or Where Did You Sleep Last Night, was performed often by Leadbelly and was an old song probably written sometime in the 1870s. Kurt Cobain covered it in the 90s, so it will probably sound familiar. He attributed it to Leadbelly because Leadbelly's recording of this song done in 1944 is what inspired Nirvana covering it in the early 90s. This is personally one of my all-time favorite recordings of Leadbelly's. Here you go. Last 
night. Come on and tell me something about it. In the pines, in the pines, where the sun don't ever shine, I bet you will all night through. This episode is sponsored by SaveTheChildren.org. Save the Children believes every child deserves a future. In the United States and around the world, Save the Children works every day to give children a healthy start in life, the opportunity to learn, and protection from harm. They deliver lasting results for millions of children, including those hardest to reach. They do whatever it takes for children, every day and in times of crisis, transforming their lives and the future we share. Right now, the coronavirus is the biggest global health crisis of our lifetime, and it threatens at-risk children in every way. COVID-19 has already left many children without caregivers, out of school and exposed to violence and exploitation, and child poverty is rising. With your support, SaveTheChildren.org can help children in unsafe households and help support distance learning in the face of school closures. A donation of just $5 can make a difference. $5 can buy a baby's first book, providing comfort and inspiring a lifelong love of learning. $5 can also provide a nutritious breakfast and lunch for a child who usually relies on school for food. $50 can serve 10 hungry out-of-school children a nutritious breakfast and lunch. So check out savethechildren.org slash savekids and make a difference today. Now, back to the show. In 1915, when much of the world was at war, Huddy, now 27, and his wife Lethe moved back to Harrison County, close to Marshall, Texas, near Huddy's parents' farm by Cotto Lake. Sometimes it blows my mind thinking about how many of the histories I've discussed in this podcast were happening simultaneously. When Huddy and Lethe were heading back to Harrison County, Ernest Shackleton and his crew were stranded on the ice in Antarctica. Stubby the War Dog and Sergeant Bill the Goat were getting ready to make history as animal mascots fighting in World War I. Annie Edson Taylor was posing for photos next to a replica of the barrel she had used to plummet down Niagara Falls the first person ever to do so. Shackleton and Annie would never hear Lead Belly sing. They were both dead by the time he started recording. But they were all making history at the same time. And it's possible that some of Shackleton's crew that survived the war after returning home did hear him and his Stella in their crackling recordings some years later. It's romantic, isn't it? But I digress. Huddy's parents were delighted to have him close to home once again. They were both in their 60s now, and running an almost 70-acre farm on their own was proving to be harder each year. By now, his adopted sister, Australia, was grown and had moved out to start her own life. If you remember from the last episode, this farm was hard won by Huddy's parents through years of backbreaking work until they finally earned enough to buy their own land and build their own homestead. The Ledbetters were extremely proud of it, and for good reason. His mother Sally urged him to attend church, but other than appeasing her once in a while by making an appearance in the choir, Huddy was not interested much in religion. 
His father, Wes, was increasingly concerned with Huddy's drinking and fighting. He would urge Huddy to stop getting into trouble and warned him that his starvation box would be the ruin of him. The starvation box is what Huddy's father called his 12-string. His parents were concerned about him and thought he was being reckless, getting in fights, drinking too much, straying from Lethe, and eventually it all would catch up with him. In June of 1915, his parents received word that their son was in jail. He had been arrested and incarcerated in Marshall, about 19 miles away. It's not clear exactly what Huddy did, because most of the Harrison County court records from Leadbelly's time were lost or destroyed when the courthouse was relocated in the 1960s. So all we have is rumor, family lore, and the secondhand information that comes from the Lomaxes, who you'll meet a little later. Rumor and family legend say Huddy was arrested for fighting over a woman who was not his wife. This is possible, and we know Huddy was never faithful to Lethe. The Lomaxes said that Huddy told them he had been arrested for attacking a woman for refusing his advances. This is also possible. Trigger warning, I'm going to talk for a minute about some violence on women Huddy committed. Huddy had a short temper, and violence was one of his first reactions to anger. Sometimes that violence would be perpetrated onto whatever woman it was he was with at the time. Not long after his arrest, there is a story Huddy himself told. One night, he gave a woman he saw $5 and told her it was because he wanted her to be his, quote, special friend. Later, when she went to her house, she refused to sleep with him or give him his money back. So he waited outside her house, followed her into the woods when she was alone, grabbed a stick and beat her with it until it was, in his words, frazzled to pieces. He later bragged that he whipped the dress off her back. Her mother went to the police, but no arrest was made because the police often ignored violence perpetrated against black women. This is not the only story I found like this, and we'll get into another in the next episode. So it's possible that what Huddy told the Lomaxes about assaulting a woman who had refused him is possible, as is the story of him fighting over a woman. Though in order for him to be arrested for it, it would have had to have been one hell of a fight, as fights broke out all the time in the places Huddy frequented, and most were resolved without the interference of the police so it must have been a bad one. Whatever it was that got Huddy arrested in 1915, it was serious. Huddy was in jail for several weeks and could not afford a lawyer to represent him, so his parents, Wes and Sally, made the 19-mile trip to Marshall to try and find some sort of legal representation for their son. But legal costs were far too expensive for the old couple. They just didn't have the money they needed to get Huddy a good lawyer but they loved their son more than anything. They had made excuses for him for years, through an attempted murder at 16, two teen pregnancies, countless affairs, alcohol abuse, and increasing bouts of violence and run-ins with the law. So in lieu of cash payments, they went to a firm called Lane and & Lane and signed over their farm. The homestead they had built with their own hands the land they had cleared on their own, the home they had worked to get for years was gone, all in an instant, and all for their son. This is one of the most heartbreaking things about Leadbelly's story. 
especially since this run-in with the law would be far from his last. Nothing about Huddy's behavior would change after this. In fact, it would get far worse. The lawyers his parents had hired paid off for Huddy. At his trial that occurred on September 8, 1915, Leadbelly was only convicted of carrying a pistol and sentenced to 30 days in jail, along with $138.50 in court costs and fees. During his time in prison, he was ordered to work on the County Road chain gang. His sentence began on September 26, 1915. All he had to do was serve out a sentence of 30 days and then go home. Huddy was not worried about the long hours of physical labor he would be expected to perform on the chain gang. He was used to manual labor. The food in jail was bad, but it was edible, and the weather wasn't even as much of an issue as it was early autumn now. He would be in rough company, but that didn't bother him either. He was used to that too, and had years of experience handling himself with similar characters in Deep Ellum and on Fannin Street. But Huddy could not stand being told what to do. He hated being told where to go and when, and the guards would whip the hands, heads, and necks of prisoners that didn't move fast enough, and every time he heard them shout at him, the pressure he felt to fight back would boil up just a little bit hotter. Huddy was young, and he was prideful. At this point in his life, he hadn't ever seen the consequences of his violence manifest in any real way. Sure, he would get an occasional cut or black eye from a fight, have to live with a bad reputation, maybe even pay a fine from a sheriff's office from time to time. But this is the first time he was sent away to serve a real jail sentence, and he couldn't stand it. Three days into his 30-day sentence, he decided to escape. He knew the country where he was well. He had played there as a kid and hunted there. He knew the farmers whose land he could cut through, the back roads that would have the fewest numbers of witnesses, and he knew the streams and hills and forests where he could run. During the day, he worked as normal, but slowly inched his way over to the end of the chain gang, careful not to draw attention. There was an open field between him and the forest, and he knew if he had any chance at all, he would have to make it to the wood line. When the guard was distracted, Huddy grabbed his chains, careful not to let them clink in his hands, knowing that would draw the attention of the guard, and he made a run for it. It was a slow, awkward run over the field, Huddy stumbling and holding his chains. About 50 yards into his run, he dropped them. Maybe by accident, maybe because he felt he needed to run faster. Whatever the reason, this caught the guard's attention, who kicked his horse into action and shouted an alarm. An escaping prisoner was to be shot on sight, and Huddy saw the bullets hit the ground by his legs and heard them whiz past his ears. He leapt into the woods as the guard galloped towards him. They lost sight of their prisoner as he dashed into the overgrowth. Huddy ran through the trees as fast as he could, tripping over his chains occasionally. He made it out into a clearing where he found a startled field hand. Huddy begged the man to break the chains with his axe, but the scared man, not wanting any trouble, merely shouted for Huddy to pass by. Huddy heard the barking of dogs in the distance and knew they were tracking him. He had no time to waste and ran back for the tree line. 
he stumbled onto more field hands clearing pine trees in the woods, and without needing much of an explanation, one of them swung his axe and broke the chains holding Huddy's legs together. With the chain cut now, Huddy could run faster, and he made his way to a nearby stream, running through it downstream for several hundred meters before collapsing exhausted on the bank under as much cover as he could find. Miles away, Sally, Huddy's mother, began to feel a bad premonition. She couldn't explain it, but she knew something was wrong. Not long after, Huddy burst through the door in prison clothes and chains around his ankles. It's hard to imagine what his parents must have felt at seeing their son in that moment. They had given up their farm for him. All he had to do was serve a sentence of 30 days. But here he was, three days into his sentence, running from the law and once again asking them to get him out of trouble. But this was serious. There would be more than a 30-day sentence to serve now, and Wes and Sally had nothing left to hire their son another lawyer with. He had already cost them everything. His father hid him in a cane patch for a couple of hours, but knew his family would be the first people the law would question about their son's escape. So they told him to change his clothes, get on a train, and head to New Orleans. Not long after Huddy left, the sheriff rode his horse down their road to see Sally and Wes and asked them if they knew where their son was. Wes replied that the last he knew, his son was on the chain gang. The sheriff stared at the old man, the one who had just lost his farm and his fugitive son. And he knew he was lying. The sheriff simply said, You're a damn old liar. Then turned around and continued riding his horse up the road. And Huddy was now on his way to New Orleans. Back then, the train ride would have taken nearly an entire day. When he arrived, he found the music scene in New Orleans was just as vibrant as it was the first time he had found himself there. But he was never a fan of the city. Within a week, he was heading back to Texas again, but it was too risky for him to stay with his parents. Instead, he headed up to DeKalb in Bowie County, Texas, where relatives of his mother lived and agreed to hide him. By the time all of this was happening, more than 30 days had gone by. If he had just served his sentence of 30 days, no one would be having to hide a fugitive. He and his wife wouldn't be having to relocate, and he would be back playing his music by now. I wondered if he pondered this as he made his way north to Bowie County and a new life. His new home was 85 miles, roughly 137 kilometers from his old one. Far enough for him to have some sense of security, but not far enough that he didn't have to be careful. Lethe had come with him, and the two decided he needed to avoid playing music for a while as they laid low. A stocky man playing a 12-string guitar was not inconspicuous. They needed aliases now, too. They chose names that were common for the area and soon they were referring to themselves as Mr. Walter Boyd and Mrs. Lethe Boyd. Lethe kept her first name. By early 1916, the couple was living in a small sharecropper's farmhouse near Beaver Dam. The land was peppered with farms and plantations, and most of the residents worked as farmers or sharecroppers. Huddy, now Walter, and Lethe made money working on farms and sustained themselves in large part by their own home garden. 
It wasn't too different a life than the one they had previously, only Huddy wasn't playing music the way he wanted to. They had family in the area. One of Huddy's cousins, Mary Walker, was married to a man named Will Stafford. The two men were around the same age, and they quickly struck up a friendship. Will was a tall man, good at riding horses, and he and Mary lived on a sharecropper's farm only a quarter mile from Huddy and Leffy. Their farmhouses were even within eyesight. It wasn't surprising that Will and Huddy struck up a quick friendship. He was married to Huddy's cousin, which made him family, and Will also liked women, almost as much as Huddy did, and didn't mind betting some of his earnings on cards. It would be a relatively short-lived friendship, one that would change Huddy's life forever. It was easy for Huddy to find work in his new county. He was an experienced farmer, strong, and could pick cotton faster than most. But he was always looking for more employment. He was described as having a mean demeanor and as someone who tended to cause trouble. I couldn't find anything more specific than that, but it sounds like Huddy had a hard time holding down a job because of his aggressive behavior. And losing job after job didn't seem to change that behavior much, because there were a number of farms in the area. When he lost his job at one, he would simply move on to the next. Life must have seemed familiar to Huddy and Lethe in DeKalb. In springtime, the cotton was planted. In the summer, it was tended and dewormed. In the fall, it was back to the brutal, back-breaking work of picking thousands of pounds a week under the hot sun, one that still broiled in the Texas sky during harvest season. Despite the long hours from dawn to dusk working on other people's farms, Huddy and Lethe still always seemed to be broke. Money was always scarce, and work was always hard. When Charles Wolfe and Kip Lornell wrote their book, The Life and Legend of Leadbelly, they still found old-timers in the area who had been so impressed those many decades ago by Huddy's capacity to pick huge amounts of cotton that stories of him picking five and six hundred pounds a day were still a part of local legend. At one point, Huddy would boast that he could pick eight to nine hundred pounds a day, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a cotton farmer who didn't think that was impossible. Huddy was sometimes able to sell his skill as a cowboy, he already knew how to ride and rope from childhood, and he was excellent with horses. Sometimes white families in the county would hire him to break and train wild horses. This was a dangerous job, but danger never bothered Huddy much, and he was great at it. For Huddy, the familiarity of country life may have brought comfort and peace of mind. It was assurance that he had escaped the law back home. But it must have been tedious, too. Huddy lived and breathed his music, and while he was hiding, there was no Dallas, no deep Elm with its exciting music scene. Huddy couldn't totally part from his music, though. Even when he went out into the field to work, he brought his guitar with him. He'd strum and sing during breaks, and others would gather around to hear him. But risking too much too soon would have meant more jail time, a harsher sentence, or worst case, death. So the Leadbetters, now the Boyds, continued to bide their time in Northeast Texas. Huddy, or Walter, as everyone else knew him now, continued to make friends. Huddy, or Walter, as everyone else knew him now, continued to make friends. 
Elliot Griffin and Lee Brown, two men who lived and worked in the area, struck up friendships with Huddy too. Huddy, Griffin, Brown, and Will could often be found together in the hours between working the fields. Eventually, Huddy grew bolder with how often he played and where. Eventually, he was playing regularly again on weekends at juke joints and dances, and soon his 12-string and talent brought him increasing popularity in the area. No one knew him as Huddy Ledbetter, though. He was now Walter Boyd, just a farmhand with an incredible gift for music. The dances and juke joints where he played were typical of what he had known for years since he started playing gigs at the age of 14. There was drinking, gambling, and violence, often nightly. And soon he found himself straying from Lethe just as often as he had in Dallas. And one woman in particular, named Chammy Jones, had caught his eye. The problem was, she was already having an affair with Will Stafford, the man married to Huddy's cousin Mary. One night, Huddy, Will Stafford, and their two friends, Griffin and Brown, were walking together to a dance that was being held at a local school. The four men were alone. It was dark, their footsteps crunching on the dirt road that turned into a narrow path meandering through the swamp. The men talked, maybe laughed, probably about work, the people they knew, the dance, and Chammy Jones. At some point, Huddy and Will started to raise their voices at one another, then shout. There was an argument, followed by a struggle, and then... <laughs> the body of Will Stafford lay dead on the road, and Huddy was holding the gun that killed him. This time, there would be no escape for Leadbelly. That is where we are going to leave Leadbelly's story this time. Join me again in two weeks' time to see what happens next. Leadbelly's adventures, believe it or not, are just beginning. I'm going to end this show like I promised with Blind Lemon Jefferson. But first, I want to give a huge thank you to my patrons, everyone who has subscribed and reviewed, and everybody that has helped spread this show by word of mouth. I can't even begin to tell you how much those things mean to me. There are somewhere around a million podcasts out there, and the reason this one hasn't completely gotten lost in all that noise is because of you awesome human beings. So thank you from the bottom of my little nerdy heart. If you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. To support the show and become a patron for as little as a dollar a month, you can do that at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. I will be back in two weeks with more Leadbelly for you. Until then, my dear wandering stars of podcast land, go make some history. Now. Here is Blind Lemon Jefferson singing to you from 1926, just three years before his tragic death in Chicago. This is Rabbit Foot Blues. Here you go. The rabbit running wild, smiling, mom. 